If you have your Bible with you this morning, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 19. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. So also your faith is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I thank You this morning that You have, in Your perfect wisdom, given Paul these words that he should speak to the church at Corinth and in doing so to us. And that You have, by Your power, by Your sovereign providence, kept these so that we could have them now. That we could learn more of Your Son now. And Lord, would You help us do that. Help us to know more of Your Son to treasure Him more, to love Him more, to cherish Him more. Lord, may this day be a day that we all leave here not talking about how good or bad the sermon was, not talking about how good or bad the the service felt, but talking about how good Your Son is. Lord, would You help us? Help me, Lord. Use me as a mouthpiece, as an ambassador, and get me out of the way. Do this for your glory and your people's good. In Christ's name, amen. I wonder what are some of the biggest lies that you've ever heard? Or maybe what are some of the biggest lies that you've ever told? What about, I'm leaving the house now, I'll be there soon. When really you haven't even gotten ready yet. Or, oh, nothing is wrong, I'm perfectly fine, don't worry about me. When really deep down, something's stirring within you. Or what about when you 
go to the dentist's office. They check you in. You go and sit in the chair and the dentist says, open wide, this won't hurt a bit. These are some of the biggest lies that we've been told. And these are lies that people tell all the time. But that's not the point of this message. As we've been studying through Mark's Gospel together, we've looked at several sermons so far, and we've gone back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, that the thesis statement, the overarching banner over Mark's Gospel, is that Mark is telling us that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that He is who He says He is, that He has come to fulfill all of the Old Testament, that He has come to make everything about Him, that Jesus is who He says He is. And the whole of Mark's Gospel is about that. And as we look here in 1 Corinthians 15, we see that Paul's message is about Jesus. But he tells us this story about Jesus. He tells us this record of what Christ has come to do and be on our behalf. And then at the end of it, he says, but if all of this is false, if all of this that I've lived for, if all of this that I've preached, if all of this that all of the prophets and the apostles and all the people of the Bible have told you, if all of it just proves, out, proves to be false, we're most of all to be pitied. How pitiful would it be if all of this that we've placed our faith in just proved itself to be untrue? It was C.S. Lewis who said that Jesus is either a liar, He's a lunatic, or He's Lord. Which is He to you? Now we see this morning in our text that Paul is taking great strains to prove to us that his story is true. The first thing that I want to look at this morning is the preaching of the message or the purity of the message. Note with me in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, it says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you in the past tense, which also you received in which also you stand. Notice here that the same Paul who says in Philippians chapter 3 to the church at Philippi that it's no problem for him to repeat himself if it helps them, that here he is apparently repeating himself. He is preaching, look at verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren. It's important when we come to a text of Scripture that we understand the audience to whom he is speaking. And here, Paul is speaking or writing to the church. He's writing to fellow believers, to brothers and sisters. And then he says, the gospel which I preached to you, past tense, which also you received past tense, in which you also stand, present tense. So because of the power of the word that went out, they now stand in Christ because that word has worked within them to save them, to bring them out of darkness into the marvelous light in Christ. And now they are walking in Christ. And he's saying, I'm preaching to you, church. I'm preaching to you, brothers and sisters. I'm preaching to you, fellow laborers for the kingdom of God. Now this is important for us to know because what Paul is telling us here is what we all need to remember that the gospel is not just for the unsaved. That the gospel is every bit as much for those who have been walking with the Lord for decades as it is for those who have never known the Lord at all. And if we've become cold and calloused, closed off to the Word of God, to the gospel, to the glorious message that Jesus is for us what we cannot be on our own. That He came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Namely, to make sacrifice for us, to atone for our sins. That if we ever become calloused or closed off to that, we need to evaluate where we are. Because the gospel is for you, believer. As much as it is for the unsaved who must come to Christ. Paul is preaching to fellow believers. 
here, Paul emphasizes that he is preaching to believers, to fellow Christians, because of verse 2. After he says, I'm preaching to you, brethren, I'm preaching to you, church. In other words, he's saying, if you're not paying attention, you need to pay attention to what I'm going to tell you because I'm going to tell you about the gospel. Here's why. Verse 2. By which also you are being saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. What we're told in texts such as 1 John is that if you walk away from the faith, you were never in the faith to begin with. If you leave the faith, if you renounce God, you say, I want nothing more to do with Him, it's because you never knew Him to begin with. And this is what he says in verse 2, is that he's preaching the gospel so that we can evaluate ourselves, so that we can examine ourselves. And because verse 2, the beginning of that, it says, by which you are being saved. Now as soon as we place our faith in Christ, which is itself a gift from God, as soon as we place that in Christ and believe in Him, repent of our sins, turn away, we are at that point saved. We are at that point made new or given newness of life. God works within us and regenerates our hearts so that we would believe in Him, calls us or draws us to Him, and we come to Him in saving faith. And at that point, we are saved. But here in verse 2, it says, by which you are being saved. In the present tense. That is because what Paul is talking about here is sanctification. Paul's talking about the continual renewal of the heart and the mind. We read just several weeks ago in Romans chapter 12 that we are to be renewed in the mind, to be transformed by the renewing of the mind, not conformed to the image of the world, but transformed into the image of the Son. And here, Paul is saying, if you desire to be made more like Christ each and every day, you need the Gospel. You don't graduate from the Gospel at some point as though the Gospel was just for salvation and then you leave it behind. But no, he's saying, I'm preaching to believers because this Word is the same Word by which you were saved and it's the same Word by which you are being saved or being sanctified in Christ. (coughs) Verse 2 is really a call to examine ourselves. Are you in Christ? I'm not asking this morning, did you at one point when you were eight years old walk an aisle and pray a prayer? I'm asking this morning, are you walking with the Lord now? What does your life look like at this moment? What's on your mind? Is it the pornography that you watched last night? Is it the affair that you're caught up in? Is it the, 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 the alcohol that you can't wait to leave service and just get blackout drunk with? What's on your mind this morning? What's on your heart this morning? What sits on the throne of your heart? And that's what Paul is saying here. Is he's writing to believers. He's writing to people who are gathered amongst the church saying, you need to examine yourselves. You need to ask yourself, are you truly believing in Him? Are you truly believing in the One you claim to believe in? Now in verse 3. After He tells us who He's preaching to and what He's preaching about and why He's preaching it, He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Before we get into the heart of this morning's message, we can't skip over verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. 
If I were to hand out index cards to each one of us this morning and ask you to write down what is your most treasured possession, what is your item that you have of highest value, what might you write down? Your family, your friends, your house, your job, your car, your financial security, your social status. What might you write down on that card? If we were to perform this same test for Paul and give the Apostle Paul a blank index card and say, write down what is most important to you. Write down what is of first importance. What is of highest importance. What makes everything else pale in comparison. There would be no question for him. He wouldn't have to churn in his mind. What is it? What do I write down? What do I put this, put on this card? I don't know what's important to me. No, he says it here in verse 3. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, namely the gospel. And he goes on in verses 3 through 5 to tell us about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message, the good news of what Jesus has come to do for Paul. This is the most important thing that he has. And it should be for us as well. There should be nothing else that compares to knowing Christ. Nothing else that compares to studying His Word and to treasuring up His Word. As the psalmist says in Psalm 119, I store your, I treasure your Word in the storehouses of my heart. I'm storing it away. It is treasure that I want to keep safe within me. It is something that I want to guard. It is something that I want to nurture as the years go on. A relationship with Christ and His Word. For Paul, he says, there's nothing else there's nothing else that could, co- could possibly compete or compare to this Gospel. I wonder this morning if that's how you are about the Word of God. That you look at what Jesus has done. That you look at the Old Testament and see how it's fulfilled. That Jeremiah talks about the Messiah who would come. That Isaiah talks about the Messiah who would come. That Daniel, as we looked at last week in Daniel 7, talks about the Son of Man who would come. And you look at that and then you see the New Testament and you say, oh, it's being fulfilled. It's all fulfilled in Christ and you are amazed by it. Is that how you are this morning? Or are you just here saying, oh, another sermon. Can't wait to get this over. Mark this off my Sunday list and get out. I wonder where you are this morning. Is this gospel, is a relationship with Christ of first importance? I know I've mentioned it before, but the old hymn, Take the World and Give Me Jesus, is that your life's anthem? Take everything else that the world has to offer. As long as I have this Jesus, this risen Savior, I have all I need and more. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 says that he has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What else could we need but Jesus? If your desire to get to heaven is not to be with Jesus, then your desire to get to heaven is based on a false premise. It's based on something else other than the person who is central to Heaven. Paul here says, the most important thing to me is the Word of God. The most important thing to me is what Christ has done and who Christ is. In Philippians 1 verse 21, Paul says that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, both his life and his death were about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that's what Paul tells us here. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, if we were to go back in our Bibles, just a few chapters, one of my favorite verses is found there. 
where Paul says, Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, you'll remember in the, in, in the book of Matthew that Jesus gives out the seven woes. He gives out these woes to the church or, or to the people in that day. A woe is misery. It's destruction. Paul is saying, if I can't preach the Word, if I can't trust in what I'm telling you, then I am miserable. If this word is not true, if Christ proves Himself to be untrue at the end of time, then I am absolutely miserable. If this world is all that it has with all of the taxes we have to pay and all the pains we have to bear and all of the sins that we commit, if this world is all that there really is, we have every reason to be miserable. We have every reason to be depressed. We have every reason to take those pills and end it all now. But Paul says there's more to the story. This isn't it. Look with me at the end of verse 3. Going back to the beginning, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's what's so important to him. Here's what is of greatest importance, what nothing else compares to, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now Paul says something in both of those verses, verses 3 and 4, according to the Scriptures. That phrase is important as we get down through the end of this text because he's validating his message. He's saying if you want proof, go back to the Old Testament. If you want proof that Jesus is who He says He is, just read it. Just read the book and you'll see that He's the fulfillment of it. But he says in verse 3, Christ died for our sins. And as I read that, as I read that, remember the, the context, remember the audience here. He's writing to the church in Hebrews chapter 9, we're told that he lays his life down for the church. And uh, John chapter 10, we're told that he lays his life down for the sheep. So he died specifically for the church, specifically for his people. And knowing that, knowing that Christ died for me, is amazing to me. And you, dear Christian, remembering that Christ died for you. That the old song that says, when He was on the cross, I was on His mind. That when Jesus was on the cross, His church, His bride, His people, the people He was atoning for, they, you and I, were on His mind. Who am I? That this King, that Jesus, would bleed and die for me. Who am I that this God would come down in the flesh? That He would be on my behalf what I could never hope to be for myself. That I could never be pure enough. I could never be righteous enough. I could never be holy enough to tip the scales in my favor. No matter how good you think you are, you're marked by depravity. You're marked by evil. You're marked by sin. No matter how good you think you're doing, You've committed sin against God. You've committed treason against your Creator. And for that, infinite punishment is the only thing that would be just of God to give you. It's the only thing that would be right or equitable for God to give you. Oh, we love talking about fairness today. We love talking about that's just not fair. This just isn't fair. That doesn't seem right or equitable to me. And yet, if we talk about fairness in the Word of God, what's fair is that we all get hell. That's what's fair. 
what's fair, what's just, what's right, what's equitable is that we all get eternal damnation for our sins against God. And yet, because of this, because of verse 3, Christ died for our sins. This is why you and I are sitting here. If you are in Christ, this is why we're sitting here knowing that hell is not our future. That eternity with this risen Savior, that is our future. This is why. And if you're sitting here this morning not excited about that, not encouraged because of that, not encouraged to go out into the world and to proclaim the gospel to anyone and everyone who has ears to hear, there's something wrong in your theology. This is why we have eternal hope. This is why right here, because Christ died for our sins, but not just that, verse 4, here's what we're celebrating today, that He was buried and He raised. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the very heart of the Gospel. That Jesus saves sinners not based upon our goodness, but upon His. Based upon His own love, His own mercy, His own grace, His own purity, His own righteousness, His own Son. Jesus, according to Romans 4, verse 25, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification being a legal declaration of guiltlessness or of rightness, of righteousness. Jesus died for our trespasses and was raised as a symbol or stamp of approval that the Father said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. His sacrifice is enough. It's enough. Verses 4-8, through Paul reminds us of why we're gathered here today. In fact, of why we're gathered every Sunday. Easter Sunday is not the only day that we celebrate the resurrection of a risen Savior, but it should be every Sunday, every day. But nonetheless, He reminds us of why we're gathered here today, why we're celebrating this, why we're taking a break from our Mark sermon series to preach this text. It's because of Jesus, we're still in the grave. Like all of the false gods of this age, we would have no reason to be gathered in worship. He would be no different from any other man. Sure, a good teacher, a good man, someone who seemed to fulfill some of the messianic prophecies, but he died, and that was it. No more power, no more authority, and he would have proven himself not to be who he said he was because he said that he would take up his life. He would have lived and died a mere dash on his tombstone to note the life he lived. But there's more to the story. Calvary was not the end of the road. There's another chapter, another page, another story after the cross. If we were to take a trip to Greece, the Parthenon there houses all of the Greek gods of mythology. Nike, Artemis, Apollo, Zeus, and Athena. They're all housed under one roof named the Parthenon. They're all contained there as myth and legend. They're all set up as a museum, as props. They have no power, no authority, no life, no sovereignty. Psalm 135 verses 13 through 18 says, Your name, O Lord, is everlasting. Your remembrance, O Lord, throughout all generations. For the Lord will judge His people and will have compassion on His servants. The idols of the nations are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. 
They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will become, become like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. What the psalmist is telling us is that all of these false gods, all of these idols that we prop up in the world today appear to have life. They give the appearance of hope. They give the appearance of satisfaction. The appearance of peace and joy and comfort and life and satisfaction. But it was Thomas Watson who said, why would we drink a sea of wrath for drops of satisfaction? All these false gods may have the appearance of life, but they are dead. They are lifeless. They are without a power. They are without power, without authority. And not only that, but at the end of that text, in Psalm 135, verse 18, it says, Nor is there any breath at all in their mouths. Those who make them will become like them. Yes, everyone who trusts in them. So these false gods that we see in the world, these idols that we prop up and worship out of the folly of our own heart, they only produce what they have to give, which is deadness. They lead to death. And yet, in the Scriptures, here in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that Jesus, verse 4, was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. What was He raised to? Raised unto life. And because Jesus has life within Himself, He gives what He has. He produces what He has, which is life. All the false gods of the world give death, but Christ gives life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other hope and help but this Lord Jesus Christ of whom Paul is writing here. And this is why Paul says nothing else matters. Nothing else is of eternal significance but this Jesus Christ, this gospel, this Savior, this Lord who is risen as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's proven Himself to you time and time again. But if we have any doubts of the validity of this message, get back into the text with me here at verse 5. After verse 4 says that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, verse 5 says, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So Jesus shows up on the scene after His resurrection. He says, I'm here. I'm back. And then He shows up to some more people. He says, I'm here. And then verse 6. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, what Paul is saying is, Some of those people are still alive today. Some of them have died. Some of them have gone on. But some of them are alive. So if you don't take my word for it, go ask those hundreds of people. If you don't take my word for it, go ask all of these other people what they saw, what they witnessed, what they experienced after seeing a resurrected Savior. Suppose that there was a murder trial going on at the local courthouse. A man was put on trial under the indictment of killing his neighbor. He shot and killed his neighbor over a property dispute. He didn't think anybody had seen it. He took care of the body. He got rid of that, so he thought that he was in the clear. But there was an eyewitness. His neighbor on the other side of the fence saw everything that happened. And so as the man's on trial, he's sitting there waiting for the verdict. 
And he sees his neighbor walk up to the stand and take the stand and he's an eyewitness to the event that took place. But after the man gives his witness, after he gives his testimony, the court isn't entirely certain of which way they're going to go, guilty or not guilty. But then, another eyewitness comes and another and another until there are hundreds of eyewitnesses. The court has no choice then but to say that that man is guilty. And that's where we find ourselves in this text. Is that Paul's saying, I'm telling you this. I've lived a life that reflects the power and glory of God. I've lived a life that shows that I was one who persecuted the church. I was one who hated the church. I was writing off, signing off on the killing of Christians. And yet on that road to Damascus, something happened in me that could not have happened on my own. I didn't just change myself. I didn't just turn over a new leaf. I didn't just Mr. Clean my life and make everything better. No, something miraculous had to happen to me and that was the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've lived that life. But if that's not enough, look at the other apostles. Look at the disciples. Look at these 500 people and listen to what they have to say. So what he's asking us this morning is, you need proof? How's about an eyewitness? What about 500 eyewitnesses? What about an entire book that is written as with an iron pen by God Himself through His inspired authors and passed down from generation to generation? What about your family member who you never thought would be saved and yet God did something in their life that only He could take the credit for? What about your own life that you were walking right in the muck of sin? You were wallowing around in the pigsty that was your own sinfulness. And God took you out of there and said, you're mine. You are mine. I am claiming you as my child, as my son, as my daughter. You need proof that we serve a risen Savior? There's enough proof right there. And yet, Romans 1, 19-23 says, That which is known to us about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them to everybody in existence. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. So that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their their thinking and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God For an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. What Paul tells us in Romans 1 is that everyone can look around and see that there had to have been a creator. There has to be a divine design to this. There has to be someone who is powerful enough to be holding all of this together. And Colossians 1 tells us that that someone is Jesus Himself, is the person about whom we're reading this morning. The world can look around and see that clearly. You can look around and see that there has to be a God. Look at all the vibrant colors. Look at all the animals. Look at all the beauty. And Job, God asked Job, have you ever gone out to the mountains and seen mountain goats give birth? Do you know where the deers frolic? Do you know about all of these things? Do you know who causes the rain to fall and the seas to find their, their ends of the end of their places? Do you know where all of that is? And of course the answer is, Job says, no, I don't. I don't know any of that. You and I can look around and see all of this goodness, all of this beauty, and know that there has to be a God. 
and yet in our folly, we tend to still try to deny it, to make up other answers for it. So I asked this morning, because I care about your soul. In Romans chapter 1, Paul calls people who deny the existence of God, who deny the resurrection of God, he calls them fools. So I asked this morning, because I care for your soul, are you foolish this morning? Are you so foolish to deny what's obviously right in front of your face? Paul says, I have plenty of evidence for you. Do you deny the evidence of hundreds, thousands, millions of history, of science, and of the Word of God? The second point that I want to make really quickly is that there's no pity for the messenger. Verses 9 through 19. Paul says in verse 9, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. He says, everything that I am, everything that I have, the life that I have today, the hope of eternal life that I have in the future, all of that is because of Jesus. It's all about Him. It's all because of Him. And because of that, this message is not in vain. This message isn't untrue. This is not the greatest scandal, the biggest lie that human history has ever known. But this is the greatest truth that human history has ever known. Verse 11, Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Now if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses or liars about God because we testified against God that He raised Christ. If He didn't really raise Christ and we're saying He did, then there's a lie there. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have just perished. They're gone. There's no eternal life for them. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. I love this portion of the text because it's just dripping with sarcasm. After everything that Paul says, after all the great lengths that Paul goes to to tell everybody about this gospel, to remind us of the glory of God and the goodness of God, he says here in verse 19, Now, if all of this is untrue, if we get to the end of life and it's played back on a screen and it shows us that all of this were false, we all were running headlong after something that didn't really matter at all, then sure, pity us then. Feel sorry for us then. And he says, not only pity us, but that we're the most to be pitied. That more than the leper about whom we preached a couple of weeks ago, more than the paralyzed man, more than the beggar, more than the sinner, more than anybody else in history, we are to be pitied because we placed all of our hope, all of our faith, all of our trust in something that didn't amount to be true. If we've hoped in Christ 
in this life only and it all proves to be false, then yeah, pity us. But Paul isn't putting a net in place just in case the bottom of this falls out. He can catch himself and say, no, remember I told you if it's not true, pity me. That's not what he's saying here. Because here when Paul is writing, he still has about 10 years of life left before he'll die. And so what Paul is saying, if at the end of this life, if after I've lived the next 10 years that I have left, Paul didn't know how much time he had left, but if after I live the remaining days of my life, and then at the end of it, the message that I'm going to continue to preach, I'm going to continue to live by, if it's all false, yeah, pity me then. I think it's hilarious that Paul says this. He's doubling down here. He's saying, I believe so deeply, so convictionally, so passionately that Jesus is who He says He is, that He has accomplished what He said He came to accomplish, that I am going to live the rest of my days just like I've lived the days before. Nothing is going to deter me from this. I don't care what the world says. I don't care what the news says. I don't care what my neighbor says. I don't care what my coworkers say. They can mock me, make fun of me, kill me. I don't care. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, I will live the rest of my days for the Lord. And then at the end of it, if you want to pity me then, pity me. Feel sorry for me. But I'll already be in the grave at that point. A couple of weeks ago, maybe some of you saw the footage of that terrible tragedy that took place in Nashville. where there was a senseless crime committed against kids not much older than my own. As someone who was so confused about her own identity, someone who was so confused about her place in the world, went and killed children just for attention. And yet in the aftermath of that, One of the children who died was the pastor's own daughter, his only daughter, out of all of their kids. And in the aftermath of that event that took place, there were pictures posted of the pastor and his family and videos posted of the pastor and his family. And there was a video that surfaced of that church singing the doxology, singing... Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That very next Sunday, after that took place on Monday. And that pastor and his family are ministering to other families who have lost their children. That pastor is standing firm in every picture I've seen. Now the grief that he's experiencing is unimaginable. I'm sure they've barely slept since then but yet they're still standing firm. They're still getting up out of bed every morning and going about life. Now what is it that makes a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, stand firm and all this world throws our way? What is it that would cause us to have this kind of hope, this kind of steadfastness that he has, that this pastor's family has? What is it that causes a church, a congregation, that has just experienced something so tragic, 
just that week to worship God with uplifted hands, to, to belt out worship to God saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. What is it that causes a church, a congregation, a person to worship like that, to stand fast like that? It's this. It's 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is alive and well. That they trust that their children who died are safe in the arms of God because God is a loving God. God is a just God. God is one who is perfect and pure and holy and who is in control of all things even when it seems like He's lost control. Jesus is alive and well. And that's what we're, that's what we're celebrating today is that we have a risen Savior. Yeah, the eggs are fun. The family get-togethers may be good for the soul. But this Word of God, this Gospel, this message that Jesus is risen gives us hope to stand even in the wake of the most awful things the world has to throw our way. We have no need for pity. There's no need to feel sorry for us because we have everlasting life in Christ if we trust in Him. And this morning, if you don't yet know Him as Savior, I bid you, turn away from your sin. Trust in Him and see God work in ways that only He can take the credit for. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You that Your Son is risen, that He is alive and well, that He has given us reason to sing, reason to hope, reason to stand. Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for your son. In whose name we pray. Amen.